Good morning, High Point. Good to be with you this morning. Thankful for those of you who joined us online. Those of you who are here in person, we're so glad to have you with us. If you will recall, uh, right before Easter, we did a series where we looked at what the Bible had to say about living in the last days. And I believe with all my heart that we are in fact living in the last days. There's just too much unrest going on in the world pointing in that direction. Too much biblical prophecy has been fulfilled for us not to believe that. And though that was a series that I had really wanted to do for a long time, it actually took me eight years of being your pastor before I brought such a a series. And I'll tell you why. I tend to lean towards teachings that are meant to strengthen our Christian walk today and our belief and our confidence in the Lord. Things that will help to develop the fruit of the Spirit within us and help us to become productive followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now certainly an end time series is important to help us to know what is to come and to show us how it's all going to end, but there are other truths found within the scriptures that are designed to help us to thrive today. I mention this because as I have been seeking God as to where he would have me go this Sunday after Easter and the weeks to come, I received my answer. And I am going to begin a series today from the book of John. And you may ask, why John? Well, let me explain. When you study what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tend to cover many of the same miracles, many of the same events of Jesus' life and his ministry. While John's gospel account focuses on who Jesus is, while the others tend to focus on the signs and the sayings of Christ, John emphasizes the identity of Christ and his divinity. John makes this very, very clear that his gospel account is his personal testimony about his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I happen to believe that John's gospel account to be the most engaging of them all. And it is powerful. In fact, let me tell you how powerful it is. When my wife was in her early 20s, like many people, she was seeking to try to discover the true meaning of life. She did not grow up in a Christian home. She, she knew there had to be something more. And that's when she met a woman at work who was different. She discovered that this woman was a Christian. And Lisa was intrigued by how she daily lived her life so differently from the other women that she worked with. As she got to know her and started to ask her questions, this, this, her advice to Lisa was, I want you to get a Bible And I want you to read the book of John. So she bought a Bible. And before Lisa opened up that Bible and read John's gospel, she prayed a simple prayer in her apartment all by herself. She said, God, if you are real, please make yourself known to me. By the time she got to chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well with Jesus, she was crying and she called out to the Lord and she received salvation that night by herself in her own apartment. And and just like Lisa's story, I'm finding that regularly seekers are given a copy of the book of John to simply read, and the result is that they come to know Jesus Christ. So don't ever tell me that the scriptures aren't powerful. 
Don't tell me that they're boring. Don't tell me that they're hard to read. If you look for truth in the scriptures, you will find it. The words written throughout the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they are designed to first break us down. What do I mean by that? I mean the scriptures show you your need for a Savior. They show you that you were indeed made for more than what maybe you're currently experiencing. They show you that you were designed not to do life as some kind of a, of a solo project, but you were created to follow the one who created you. Amen. And secondly, the scriptures are designed to build you up in your faith, to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus, to show you that you do indeed have a mission in this life to prepare you for the work that God has called you to do. That's what the Bible is there for, to be a godly influence in this world and to direct others towards Christ. So I'm excited to begin with this series because it is important that we are reminded of just who Christ is and why we commit our lives to him in the first place. And my prayer is that through this study in the book of John that you will grow in your knowledge and in your understanding of our Savior. Have you ever considered the amount of decisions that you have made in your lifetime based upon someone else's testimony? Maybe you decided to have solar panels put on your home because your neighbor showed you his and showed you the dramatic savings on his power bills, and so you did it. Maybe you bought a particular car because a friend had that same car and they told you what a reliable automobile it had been. How many of you have ever bought something online because of the positive five-star Google ratings that the customers wrote in and told you how great that product was? Or how many of you have ever visited a restaurant because someone told you that the food was good? I could go on and on because we read books, we shop at stores, we watch TV programs and movies, we pick a doctor, we even choose a church to attend based on somebody else's testimony. Well, those lesser decisions, they pale in comparison to the greatest decision that anyone can ever make in this life. Namely, what will you do with the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Will you believe and follow him or will you ignore his truth? Out of this entire book that we are going to study, there is one scripture that really sums it up for me. It also sums up John's reason for writing his gospel account. It is found in John 20, verse 31. It'll be behind me. In fact, go ahead and turn to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 1 here in just a minute. But this scripture in John 20, 31 is kind of the theme of this series. It says, but these are written. John, John says, I am writing this that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John not only said his gospel was his personal testimony, but he repeatedly said that he wrote his testimony with a very real purpose in mind. His hope is that readers like you and me would decide to take that step of faith that I talked about last Easter, just a week ago on Easter Sunday, and to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life, to come into your heart, to, to be the Lord over your life. 
so that we would believe, so that each one of us would experience that he is indeed the Son of God who has come to redeem us from our sin. Now, if you are already a follower in Christ, I pray that this study will help in you to deepen your relationship with Christ and that you will come away knowing him in a, in a greater, a more powerful, a more personal, a more dynamic way than ever before. This would be a wonderful thing to happen because contrary to what some people think, being a Christian is not about trying to be good. It's not about living in a certain way or sending your kids to a, to a certain school. Being a Christian is about having a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus Christ. And all believers need to continually be growing in that relationship. Amen. By the way, this would be a good time for you to invite your non-Christian friends to church. In fact, if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you are not a Christian then I hope you will join us every week because I believe the content found in John's gospel will show you of your need to become a believer, to become a follower of Christ. Now as we begin, I think it's important to offer you some background to help to give you a proper context of John's gospel account, John's testimony. And the first thing we need to note is that John wrote his gospel in his later years while he was serving as a pastor the church in Ephesus. God inspired him to, to pen these words sometime after the destruction of the temple, which was somewhere around 70 AD. Some scholars date John's gospel as late as 120 AD, and that's very possible because tradition tells us that John was very young when he decided to follow Jesus and that he lived a very long life. In any case... The date of his writings is important for us to note because it was the last of the four Gospels to be written. As I mentioned earlier, the, the first three Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic, I almost didn't say that right, synoptic means to see together. So the first three Gospels contain many of the same stories, many of the same teachings, they were things that they saw together, albeit from a different perspective. But have you ever wondered why we have four Gospels? Well, each of the Gospel writers had a particular perspective or a particular purpose in mind when they penned their accounts of the Lord's life. Matthew was writing to his fellow Jews to establish the fact that Jesus fulfilled all the Messianic prophecies. You realize this when, when he begins by providing a legal genealogy of Jesus in order to prove to the Jews that he was indeed the promised one of old. Mark wrote about the miracles that Jesus did in order to convince the, the Gentiles, the Gentile world, that, that Jesus meets the needs of the human heart. Luke wrote his gospel from the standpoint of both a physician, as we know he was, and a historian. In his writings, it is apparent that he has done a great deal of research, giving more attention to the chronological details of Jesus' life than any of the other gospel writers did. So all three of the synoptic gospels were already written, they were already in distribution when John was inspired to write his own. 
And God led John through the Holy Spirit to include some things that had been omitted, the parts of Jesus' ministry and teachings that the other three had not necessarily covered. In baseball terms, you could say that John was playing cleanup batter in the whole deal. But understand that, that John also had a, a different purpose in mind. He wrote his gospel for those who had yet to make up their mind about Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. One way that we, we see is the way that John uses the word signs to describe the miracles that Jesus performed. There are three words that are consistently used in the New Testament for the miraculous supernatural events of God. They are, they, they are power, wonder, and signs. I know this sounds obvious, but, but power is the supernatural power of God. Wonder is our response to the results of that power. And a sign was a significant purpose that God had in mind doing the miracle in the first place. Well, John repeatedly used the word sign, and it shows that his purpose was to lead people to understand that Jesus was Christ. Jesus was God, and you will see that throughout. Another reason people tend to favor this particular gospel is the way that God used John to express his great love. John's gospel has been referred to as God's love letter to the world. Martin Luther wrote these, this about John's gospel. This is the unique, tender, chief gospel. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only one single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel of John escape him, Christianity would be saved. William Barclay said the gospel of John is the most precious book in the New Testament. A more contemporary scholar, Charles Carter, says, without a doubt, the gospel of John is the best loved and most used of the gospel accounts. There is a simplicity to it that speaks to the most humble Christian and a depth to it that speaks to the most committed scholar. And I would agree, especially about his comments being about simplicity. John uses short sentences and few, if any, complex phrases. When you compare that to the Apostle Paul's writing, who often uses run-on sentences that can go on for half a page or more, it does make it more difficult to read. And I think John's is more simple. I find it easier to read. One more thing that we need to know about this gospel, when John wrote it, the church was going through being attacked by its first heresy. It was a group of false teachers known as Gnostics. Basically, Gnostics believed that all matter was evil and only the spirit was pure. So they taught that Jesus was not real flesh and blood because if he was, then he could not be God. They also said that God did not really create the world because as a spirit, God is pure and as matter, the world is not. So they believed that the world's actual creator was an emanation of an emanation of an emanation or sort of a copy of a copy of a copy. In their minds, the original God, well, he was too pure to have anything to do with this physical world. They believed that he was detached from us as human beings. 
and that he had to in order to keep his body holy. And finally, they taught that people could only attain eternal life through some kind of absolute mysterious knowledge. I'm not even sure what that knowledge is, but apparently you had to be special in order to attain it. In other words, just forget about the whole gospel message that Jesus became flesh and he came to this earth and he died for our sins. And you may be wondering why I even mentioned that particular point because you don't think that there are Gnostics today, but there are. In fact, a few years back, there was a popular film called The Da Vinci Code. It was full of Gnostic teaching. So if you love that film, you might want to go back and look at how you were wrong in loving it. Plus, anybody who denies Jesus' divinity, anybody who reduces Jesus from what the Word of God says that he is, is espousing the tenets of this old religion, this, this Gnosticism. So as we study today, especially our scripture reference this morning, I want you to take notes of the things that John says to refute the teachings of the Gnostics. Okay, I know that was a long introduction. You think it was long for you, you should have been in my shoes. But with that foundation being, being established, let's get into our text this morning. We're going to be reading the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This passage contains the basic gospel message, really, in its entirety. Some have referred to this text as the most profound page in the entire New Testament. And I'll be reading this morning from the New International Version, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and became his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John has indeed stuffed a lot of truth about Jesus 
into those verses that we just read. But I want to try to focus our study this morning on just three main points that he makes because it will give us a better understanding of who Jesus is. First of all, John makes it very, very clear that Jesus is eternal. John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, before we go any further, I need to explain why John refers to Jesus as the Word. And to do that, you need to refer back to his purpose for writing his gospel account in the first place. Remember I said that John wrote his testimony about Jesus in hopes that both Jews and Gentiles would come to an understanding of who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, and that he is the Savior of the world. Well, at this point, the gospel message had spread beyond the Jewish world, and it went into the Gentile world. Thanks to the work of missionaries like the Apostle Paul, Christianity had gone from Jerusalem to Asia Minor, on to Greece, and even into Rome itself. So in John's day, Christianity was no longer a Jewish religion. In fact, by this time, there were probably 100,000 Gentile Christians for every one Jewish Christian, and John was writing to people in both of those groups, people who had not yet made up their mind about our Lord. So he picked a term that would be familiar to, to both, and the word, the word, the name he gave Jesus was that term. Because to the Jews, it was a way of saying that to see the creative power of God, the word that, that brought creation into existence, they only need to look at Jesus Christ. To the Greeks, it was a way of saying that the controlling power of the universe, what they referred to or called logos or the word, became an actual person. So the word was Jesus. And this would have spoken clearly to both of those cultures. Also, John begins his gospel account in an unusual manner. Unlike the synoptic gospels that, that begin their uh, account in a historical context, John opens up in eternity. Matthew traces the, the genealogy of Jesus. Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke starts with the story of Christ's birth, but not John. In his first two sentences, he transports us to eternity past. He takes us before creation. He takes us before mankind, before the existence of time itself. He starts his book the same way that the Bible begins, in the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. In fact, the word was that is used here means to exist independent of any beginning. So the phrase literally means in a beginning that had no beginning was the word. John was saying that Jesus, the word, he existed before his birth in Bethlehem and he lives on after his death on the cross. He was saying that, that Jesus was not made. He did not come into being. He has always been. He is eternal. There was never a time when Christ 
did not exist. Do you get that? And I don't know about you, but that speaks to me very powerfully because John is saying that all that Jesus is, he always has been. He always was. That's a wonderful thought for us to dwell upon. Well, we can't say that about the founders of of the other major world religions. We know that Buddha had a beginning and he had an ending. Just like Muhammad, just like Confucius, just like Zoroaster, they all had an end. But not Jesus, not the Word. Jesus is eternal. For Jesus was and is and always will be. Do you know what else this means? It means that, that God has always been like Jesus. I believe sometimes people think of God being a stern and avenging type of, uh, in his nature. And I think that they think that because of some of the Old Testament accounts of, of, of wars and such. And furthermore, I think people tend to think that something that Jesus did actually changed God's anger into love. That somehow Jesus altered God's attitude towards mankind. Well, you're not going to find that anywhere in the Old or the New Testament. The Bible tells us, and especially this passage of John, tells us that God has always been like Jesus. What Jesus did when he was born was to simply open up a window of time so that we might see the eternal unchanging love of God. It was only when Jesus came that men fully saw and completely understood that what God has always been like. And this leads me to point out the second way that John describes Jesus. He says that Jesus is God. Look at the last part of verse 1 where he writes, the word was God, or literally, God was the word. John was no doubt inspired by Jesus' own statement. Remember, Jesus himself said in John 10, 20, the Father and I are one. And he said in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So understand, John did not say that Jesus was identical to God, not a perfect copy, not like an identical twin, not at all. In a way that we cannot understand this side of eternity, he was God. That means that that baby who nestled against Mary's breast on that that first Christmas night was God. That, That child in the temple who was confounding the priest was God. That man who taught and fed the multitudes was God. The one who healed the sick. The one who raised the dead was God. The man who hung on that Roman cross was God. I mean, when you look at Jesus Christ, you're not seeing an isolated Jew who lived a brief span of life some 2,000 years ago. You are looking at eternal God who existed before time began. That means that everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. Jesus, in every way God, and yet he is a separate person from God the Father. Now you may find it interesting that in their New World Translation of John's Gospel, 
The Jehovah Witnesses translate this phrase in verse 1 like this. And the word was a God. Interesting. They've added the indefinite article A, but there is no indefinite article in the original Greek text. God is not a God. Jesus is God. And herein lies a struggle that, that, that many people have because unlike any other widely followed religious leader in all of history, Jesus made the most unique claim. He declared himself God, not a God, not God-like, but God incarnate, the creator of the universe who came in human flesh. And John underscores and affirms this truth in verse 3 by saying this, through him, the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Literally, he says, every single part of the universe came into being through him, through Jesus. John was saying that as God, Jesus created everything from atoms to the sun that shines in the sky. And while we're on the subject, not only did Jesus create the universe, in Colossians 1.17, Paul reminds us of this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We often speak of the law of gravity that holds things on this planet in place, when in reality, we should more accurately speak about the law of Jesus Christ. It's a law that holds not just this earth and the things on it in its proper position, but it also holds the entire universe together. And that began when the atoms that make up your body are all held together by him as well. I once heard Louis Giglio talk about an important protein that is in the cells of our bodies. It's a protein that is called laminin, excuse me. He heard about it from a nuclear biologist who one day heard him speak that night. The biologist told him that our body's cells organize themselves into certain molecular structures. He said that there are between 10 to 16,000 different proteins in our physical body. One of the proteins that scientists have identified is this lamamin. Basically, these lamamin uh, uh, proteins are cell adhesion molecules because they hold our cells together. In construction terms, you could say that they are the rebar of the human body. They are like those steel wires and rod that contractors put down before they pour your driveway and your sidewalk. That rebar holds the concrete together, just like laminin holds uh, our, our, the molecules in our body together. And to explain why I even brought this up to you is I want to show you a scientific diagram of lamamin, lamamin in a molecule. Is that cool? That is a scientific rendering. That is not something that I doctored up. That is the rendering of what they have identified. That is an amazing thing. Let me, let me say it again as, as you look at that, that illustration of that molecule. Paul says in him, in Jesus... The universe as a whole is held together. I don't know about you, but that blows me away because it reminds me of the Bible's clear teaching that Jesus is God, that he is the creator who created everything that we know. 
And he holds not just my body together, but he holds my life together. And when I look back on the difficult times that I've had in my lifetime, and I read this text from the book of John, I can clearly see, yes, Jesus, the word became flesh. And he held me together during those difficult times. And even now, he holds me in the palm of his hand. And I don't know about you, but that brings me comfort. And it, re- it should reassure you to know that, that God, he holds on to you too. I know I just read Colossians 1.17, but I want to kind of paraphrase it for you. It means that Jesus was before everything else began. And it is the, the power, his power, that literally holds everything together. Jesus is God. He is the creator and the sustainer of this entire universe. And listen to some other texts that support this truth. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So to review, John says Jesus is eternal. John says, Jesus is God. And he uses one more word to describe the word, as I've already alluded to. Thirdly, John says, in Jesus, the word became flesh. Look at verse 14. John writes this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, John says that the eternal Jesus is God, the one who created us. He became flesh, and he came to redeem us. And he came not to just redeem us, he came to recreate us. Contrary to what the Gnostic teachers were teaching, in Jesus, the holy God created this world, and then he became flesh in order to recreate it and us. He's not detached from us in any way, shape, or form. He is rebuilding. He is strengthening us every day and in every way. He left heaven and he made his dwelling place among us. He left the beauty. He left the grandeur of heaven. And he took on the mind of a servant. He did not consider himself being better than us. He became one of us in order to make us more like him. He served us. He healed us. He loved us. He showed us a much better way. And he came so that he could start to rebuild us into his image. And and there is no image that I can think of that I would ever want to be more like. I want to share with you something that was written by an evangelist named Leith Anderson. He's writing of a time when he visited the Philippines capital, Manila, and he writes this. He said, I was taken, of all places, to the Manila garbage dump and saw something I have never seen anywhere. 
On the dump in Manila, there are tens of thousands of people who make their homes. Shacks are constructed out of the things other people have thrown away, and their children are sent out early every morning to scavenge for food out of other people's garbage so that they can have family meals. People have been born and grown up there on that garbage dump. They have their families, their children, their shacks, their garbage to eat, finished out their lives and died there without ever going anyplace else, even in the city of Manila. It is an astonishing thing. But what caught my attention as much, if not more, is that there are Americans who also live in that garbage dump. They are American missionaries, Christians who have chosen to leave this country and to go there to communicate the love of Jesus Christ to people who otherwise would have never hear it or receive it. That's amazing to me. People would leave what we have to go and live on a garbage dump. Amazing, but not as amazing as Jesus' journey from heaven to earth. The Son of God made that journey, and he knew what he was doing. He knew where he was going. He knew what the sacrifice would be. He journeyed from heaven to earth on a mission to save the human race. For the earth and humanity he had created had gone terribly wrong. Sin had turned us against God and polluted our earth, once full of paradise, to what sin has left it to become. I think if God had a consultant who was a modern-day business person, probably the advice would be to cut his losses and forget about this human race and start over someplace else. Except God so loved the world and us in it that he sent his one and only son from heaven to earth. So John's powerful opening words create a dilemma for us. When we read his testimony that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the creator who became flesh, who came to this earth to die on a cross in order to save us from our sins, then we are compelled to decide whether or not to believe what John has written. And I might even say whether we choose to believe what many of us already know to be the truth because we've experienced it. And do you remember what I said about John's purpose? He wrote these words, that we might believe. And in that belief, in that commitment, that we might have life, and not just life, but that we might have an abundant life. A life like Adam and Eve experienced every day before the fall. It's a life as it was intended to be, a caliber of life that in comparison to life without Jesus is more like death than it is life. John says that when Jesus came, he was rejected by some, but to those who received him, those who believed in his name, well, they were given life. They were given life reserved for the children of God. Well, here's this dilemma that we all face today. What about you? What are you going to do with this testimony, John's testimony? Will you accept or will you reject the word? Liz, will you come forward and help me to close this down? I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet if you would. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. Those are powerful words, but I don't want you to overlook what verse 4 in chapter 1 says. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We live in a dark world, in case you haven't noticed. We see it every single day. It's funny how just when you think things can't get any more outrageous than they are, I don't know about you, but watching the news has become a comedy show for me. It's hard to fathom. It is hard to fathom how deceived we as human beings have become. But you need to understand something. Even though we live in a dark world, that darkness has not completely overcome the world. Why is that? Because of the light and the life of Jesus Christ that lives in those of us who already know him. We are his children, and no matter what goes on in this crazy world around you, when you were in Christ Jesus, you were in the best hands possible. In our end time series, we saw in the scriptures how this world is going to end. Unbelievable things. And for some, as you listen to this, these details were scary, but for those who are in Christ Jesus, it only goes to further prove that we serve the one true God and we need not fear the things that we see. And as as we proclaimed last week on Easter Sunday, he is alive and he wants his light and his life to shine in and through you to others. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today as your personal Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do so. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. In a moment, I'm going to close this service in prayer. And when I do, if it is your desire to become a follower of Jesus, all you need to do is pray a quiet prayer of faith and belief of your own. Just say, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you are God. I believe that you came here and you walked among us and you showed us the love of the Father and you died a horrific death and the blood that you shed on that cross is what covers, it's what atones for my sinful life. And so I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask that your blood atones for it. It washes it away. I want you to be my Savior. I want to live a different kind of life. I'm tired of doing life on my own. I want to do it alongside of you. If you pray a prayer like that with sincerity in your heart, you will be forgiven of your sins. You will receive salvation. You will be given a fresh start. And if you already know Jesus, I would ask that you pray that he might reveal himself to you during this series in a new way. That you'd be more reminded of his deity than you ever were before. And that you would stand strong in your faith, especially and particularly in this age of craziness in which we live. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your written word. And I thank you that you are 
the word. You are the beginning and the end. You know it all. You existed before creation. You've always been. You always will be. You are all powerful. You are almighty. And yet in your power and in your might, you loved us enough to give us free choice. You did not force us to live for you. You've shown us the way to do so, and you've showed us the benefits of that, but you do not force us to live our lives pleasing you and serving you. That alone shows me the confidence in what you have to offer. And fathers, we know our world has gotten so far off track. We are so deeply lost. We now believe falsehood is truth and truth is falsehood. We are so messed up. And we need you, Lord, more than ever. And I pray for anyone who's online or here in this place who does not know you, that even now they would be reaching out to you in prayer, asking you for forgiveness of their sin, asking you to become the Lord of their life. Father, I pray that you would do a mighty work inside of them, that they would leave this place to know today knowing that you have changed them and with a hunger and a thirst for knowing you better. And that we as a church could come alongside of them and help them and develop them and to show them what the Christian life and the walk is all about. It's not about being a nice person. It's about serving the Lord. It's about leading others into the direction of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, for those who already know you, I thank you for that. I thank you for the salvation of the saints. I thank you for the light that comes and emanates from the lives of those who know you. It's what keeps this world illuminated. Thank you for that. But Lord, we have so much yet to learn. There is not a one of us who has arrived. We are all a work in process, and, and we realize, God, that you have greater things for us, greater revelation for us, greater things for us to do if we would but open up our hearts to you and say, God, I want you to work in and through me in ways that you never have before. And Father, I pray that that would be the, our heart's cry. As we go through this series in the book of John, that we would say, God, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you would like me to accomplish on behalf of your kingdom? And Father, if that was our prayer, I shudder to think of what could happen in this church and what could happen within this community because of the light that we shine into this dark world. So let us emanate that light brightly. Let us not waver in our belief. Let us stand firm in our faith, knowing that you are the one true God. You have always been and you will always be. And we are in the best hands possible. And Father, as we go our separate ways today, I ask your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would build people up and not tear them down. I pray that we would be bright lights in this dark world, that people would see that light coming from us and they would know that there is something different about us and doors would open as they come to us like my wife Lisa did to the woman she worked with and said, what is it that is different about you? Why are you calm? Why is there such peace? Why don't you act like the rest of the people in this work environment? And we walk through that door and say, because my best friend is Jesus. And he has saved me and he has redeemed me and he's taken away my sin and my shame and my guilt. And I can live in a carefree mindset because I know who I belong to and I know that he is able. 
So Lord, use us this week, I pray. Give us opportunities to share your goodness with other people. And I pray until we gather together again that you would keep us safe, keep us safe from COVID, keep us safe from other sicknesses and diseases, keep us safe from accidents that might befall us until we gather together again as a family and we worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence here today. I thank you, Father, for the power of your word. I pray that that power would embed itself deeply within us and that you would use us for your kingdom purposes. And I ask these things in the precious and the holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here with us today.